We have to go back! everyone and welcome back to the flashback flicks retro movie podcast i'm ricky i'm grayson and today we are taking a look back at the el royale of indie movies the 1994 movie pulp fiction mm. Mm. it is pulpy and none of it is true <laughs> oh, oh oh this is oh, so pulpy can i get this without pulp <laughs> and more honest truth. Uh, so we're reviewing this movie because uh, we are unashamed to review movies because of puns. Bad Times at the El Royale is hitting theaters. And if you listen to the tag of our last episode, we discovered that uh, there is a crossover with Pulp Fiction in their line describing what they call a quarter powder with cheese in yeah. France. And it is very, uh, like, ensemble-based, so I mm-hmm. think stylistically, and it's violent, and they, they seem like they're in the same realm. I don't mm-hmm. know. We'll go see El Royale and to see how close we got. We've made movies on lesser connections That's true. This. We were pretty sure we were on par with Venom. Yep. Um, this mm-hmm. one, This one, we might be further away. <laughs> Uh, so if you don't remember Pulp Fiction, it's probably because you were too young to be able to see it mm. uh, when it first came out. But Pulp Fiction was a uh, 1994 uh, indie crime film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino uh, based on a story by Tarantino and Roger Avery. Yeah. And it stars John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Ving Rhames, and Uma Thurman, as well as Phil Lamar, one of the people who I know the oh, most yes. about, and Harvey Keitel. Yes, Harvey Keitel. Now, you mentioned that Roger Avery wrote the the story with Quentin Tarantino. What I think is really interesting about the credits is it lists it as stories by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery, which kind of clues you in right off the bat as to how they're approaching these, that these are individual stories that have been weaved together. It's like a very gritty herald form uh, yeah. So I I hadn't noticed that on the credits. And I was like, oh yeah, they really do treat these like multiple character arcs. Oh yeah, like um, and to quote uh, Quentin Tarantino in an interview, he say, "I got the idea of doing something that novelists get a chance to do, but filmmakers don't." Telling three separate stories, having characters float in and out with different weights depending on the story. Uh, and the idea was basically to take like one of the oldest chestnuts that you've ever seen when it comes to crime stories. The oldest stories in the book, you know, Vincent Vega, Marcellus Wallace's wife. The oldest story about the guy's got to go and with the big man's wife and not touch her. Like, you know, the, the story you've seen a zillion times. Yeah, that's oldest. <laughs> Uh, He continues in saying, I'm using old forms of storytelling and then purposely having them run awry. Part of the trick is to take these movie characters, these genre characters and these genre situations and actually apply them to some real life rules and see how they unravel. Uh, Tarantino and Avery uh, decided to write originally a short uh, on a theory that it would be easier to make than a feature. But then they quickly realized that nobody makes shorts anymore. Uh, And so the film became a trilogy uh, with one section by Tarantino and one by Avery Mm. and one by a third director that never materialized. Uh, Each eventually expanded into their own film. Uh, So originally Tarantino's first script for Pulp Fiction um, actually ended up becoming Reservoir Dogs. 
Uh, And Avery's first script for Pulp Fiction uh, titled Pandemonium Reigns actually would form the basis for the Golden Watch storyline in Pulp Fiction. Oh, that's great. That makes sense that Tarantino stuff became Reservoir Dogs. And we mentioned this in the Reservoir Dogs episode, but that uh, they're, they're brothers. Yep, that uh, the the Vega brothers appear in, in both of them. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so they basically took these three parts. They basically made an expanded, interconnected universe within these three short stories and made Pulp Fiction, uh, which only cost eight point five million to make, and five million of those dollars went to pay the actors' salaries. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and they made that all back within its first week of the box office. Uh, it pulled in 9.3 million the first weekend of its wide release. It first made its uh, premiere in the Cannes Film Festival, and then it started doing a slow roll out uh, in the film festival circuit. But then when it hit uh, the public, uh, it made 107 million dollars in the U.S. box office, making it the first indie film to surpass 100 million dollars. And worldwide, it took in nearly 213 million dollars. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it's it's fresh, it's original. Uh, when something like this gets released, word's gonna get out. Oh yeah, it's the factor of you gotta see this. Uh, that I'm sure helped it out at the box office. Oh, yeah. And an interesting uh, thing that uh, I decided to not officially uh, look up and uh, confirm, because much like what is in the box, I want this to be true and have it be whatever I say it is. Um, But the legend goes is that the original cut of the film had the last scene you see is butch right off on the motorcycle yeah because chronologically that is the latest point in all of the stories if you Mm -hmm. let you line them up in the order in which they happen yeah but early screenings um hated that uh vic died yeah and so they said well we'll we'll put the ending well we'll basically start and end those stories is the same way instead of it uh, ending with him being dead. Like we see uh, Vince leave alive, even though he, you know, definitely dies yeah. later on. So, yeah. Now, the first time I watched uh, Pulp Fiction was in college mm-hmm. uh, because that's when I became old enough to watch R-rated movies. <laughs> no. Um, and I also just like I completely missed it. I mean, in 1994, uh, Space Jam hadn't come out yet, so I probably wasn't even aware of movies at all. Um, so I I just really got to see it for the first time. And also, I feel like uh, Pulp Fiction is like one of those quintessential um, R-rated movies that um, every college student has seen. Because I my first interaction with Pulp Fiction was seeing a Pulp Fiction poster in almost every college dorm I had ever been to. I was just like, so every everyone, everyone's seen Pulp Okay, got it. Uh, and I was so surprised because I feel like most iconic movies, uh, people will identify little moments. For example, um, like with Samuel L. Jackson, like his whole monologue with uh, Brett, like people are just like, yeah, Pulp Fiction, that, stabbing someone in the chest with adrenaline, that's Pulp Fiction. In the same way that people are like, Risky Business is all about Tom Cruise and just dancing to good time in rock and roll. Yeah. And then you realize 
this guy opens up a brothel in his home. That that's what risky bis that's the risky business. And then same with Pulp Fiction, it's like, oh, oh gosh, all of these so many other terrible things are happening in and around this movie. Uh and the first time I watched it, I was like, Well, I saw that. <laughs> but watching it this time, I got to uh pick up on a lot of the things that uh Tarantino quoted saying everything is kind of flipped. Like the very violent things that are happening are very minimal. Um, not a ton of attention is drawn to it. It's actually like very belittled almost like every single like really big action scene is followed almost by like something comedic mm-hmm. or something lighthearted. Um, like even like when they're in the basement and they say, uh, no one kills anyone in my place of business except me or Zed. It's not followed by like ominous music. It's followed by ding dong. That's Zed. I was <laughs> so like, oh no. Because it completely takes like what you're expecting. It, it does uh, that thing with like horror and terror. Uh, it, th- it takes the thing that you're expecting and switches it and makes you think something different. Like when Uma Thurman is like overdosing Time is so essential, and this couple is, like, just bickering, or he's answering the phone so slowly. Just all these different, really, uh, like, genre-flipping things that I think really made this movie iconic. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, they, they build up this tension, and then they kind of release it with humor. And Marvel said, I'll take that, please. <laughs> uh, so Tim Roth, uh, who... I don't remember his actual name, but uh, they kept on calling him Ringo. Um, uh, Pumpkin is this credited name. Oh, okay. So Pumpkin. Yeah. Uh, so Pumpkin is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Abomination uh, with the Incredible Hulk movie with not Mark Ruffalo and, you know, Samuel L. Jackson. Like, I tried, I mean, so hard to make this headcanon work sure man I, yeah i tried but we'll we'll see more about that later but yes it's uh but seriously like this kind of movie i wish they did more of i love the interconnected world of just storytelling where it's just like hey this is the we're going to look at these different people and what's happening in like their days maybe like it feels like it happens within a 48 hour time period yeah, it's pretty quick, um, and I, I think the strength of it really is that the stories were written individually, because what happens a lot of the times with films is you get writers that will heavily invest in the A story, and they're like, well, I got these supporting characters, she's a B story, and they're like, well, I guess I should do a C story, and they treat the characters like C-level characters, uh, right. not C-level like the beach, but like the mm-hmm. letter C. Um, and I think with each of these, the, the protagonist of the individual story really is the star of its own story. And they treat them all like a level characters. And and that's why each one feels so fleshed out. Like you are able to go away from, you know, Vince Vega and, and Jules for an hour plus and come back and be like, oh, okay, I don't feel like I wasn't following the protagonist. I was just following a different story. Right. Uh, and, I mean, that's just a testament to the writing. 
Yeah, there is this uh, video essay I watched about Quentin Tarantino um, where they talk about how Tarantino does this thing in all of his movies, and Pulp Fiction is one of the uh, big signatures of it, which is, uh, and he unofficially called it The Pledge, which is the pledge that something interesting will happen Mm. in a scene. So you buy into the mundane or just the not even mundane but just like the trivialness of the conversations or the things that aren't as important like man my, my favorite this whole scene like they're talking about tv pilots all right before they're about to murder this guy i'm just like oh my goodness like that that i just i would never if you were to tell me today grayson if you were to say hey ricky i want to make a movie all about Spider-Man studying for his test right before he fights a villain. I'd be like, oh, all right. That, that doesn't sound good. Give me $8 million to make it happen. Yeah. No, I was looking at it, too, because in the conversation that he has with Eric Stoltz as well, it's just it's about nothing for the most part. But it eventually comes back to mean something. Like with the pilots, it really clues you in into Uma Thurman's state of mind at the beginning of that that date. Because uh, one of the things that Samuel L. Jackson has said is that every story in Pulp Fiction is a redemption story or about the pursuit of redemption. Obviously, Jules's story is it follows that of wanting to leave his life as a hitman, uh, but. I mean, Bruce Willis, Butch is looking for redemption from the fight. Uma Thurman is definitely looking for... She gets a chance at redemption uh, after her overdose. Uh, every single one of them uh, are are changed by the end of it. And those who are not like... Marcellus Wallace definitely seems changed from the beginning. Like, those who aren't redeemed are killed, basically. Like the case of, of Vince. Um, and so he, he was looking at that and he, he basically made a, made that comparison of like, if you're looking Mm. for a common theme between all these stories, these are redemption stories. These are characters going through one of the most transformative events of their life. And I think when you look at it through that lens, it really does pull this film together. That's deep. (laughs) One of the common threads I noticed this time that I've never really noticed before is how, Everyone in all of the different stories um, is like it's all about like partnership as well. Mm-hmm. Like like in like uh, with Jules and uh, and Vincent, like they it, it's their fr- like they they're friends and like it's weird to think about like oh yeah like what do hitmen do before like I guess they just hang out kind of thing. And then um, even with uh, Vincent and Mia, it's like, oh, like they could actually like hang out and like get along well. Um, And even with Marcellus Wallace and Butch, like like two people who were like enemies ended up, you know, aligning and Butch like saving him was huge. Like he didn't have to. And that was. Great, and I don't even think he was trying to like settle a score or anything. He just he did it, and then they even became like somewhat of a team. Yeah, and uh, and I thought that that was really really cool because um, I don't know if you knew this, but the gun that was uh, found in the kitchen of Butch's apartment 
wasn't actually Vince's, but Marcellus Wallace's. Oh. And Marcellus Wallace was out getting donuts because they were staking out Butch's place. Oh, that's so, so good. And so going back to the whole teamwork thing and partnership is when Vincent was left alone, he died. Yeah, because Jules has walked away, Marcellus yeah. Wallace has to be the new partner. Yeah. Mm. Oh, Grayson. Yeah. Did you forget? Forget what? What I forget? Did you forget that there was someone on this podcast in there with a big old head cannon? Look at the size of that head cannon. It's bigger than he is. <laughs> head cannon is the part of the show where we share with you unique ideas about the movie and untold stories based on evidence provided by the film. Uh, I do want to share just a piece of head cannon that's probably already uh, in your brain uh but there is this idea with uh tarantino's all of tarantino's movies mm-hmm. all occupy uh a same universe um and with the starting of violence in the movie uh and glorious bagels um that was the linchpin that started the severity of violence yeah. and that's why violence is so extreme and also not reacted to as bigly uh, you know, uh, as our world. So it exists in this like hyper violent uh, world where a different timeline exists. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I wanted to throw out there. Um, but my biggest piece of headcanon um, just has to do with the connecting this to the Mission Impossible world with Ving Rhames. Oh. Uh, I know that. Uh, we talked about redemption yep. and how, you know, we see in the very first Mission Impossible movie, which takes place in the late 90s, um, Ving Rhames uh, plays a different character. But we'll just say that this is say that Marcellus Wallace was a pseudonym. Right. Um, and maybe after this event in his gold watch act, um, he tried to do something different. Uh, and he tried to become like an agent and like be an agent for good, and that that's where his story veers off. Nice, nice. Now there have been a ton of uh, head cannons that other people have created, uh, and so I can't take credit for this one, but I think it's one worth mentioning because the the lingering question is what's in the briefcase. And um, one of the popular theories is that it is Marcellus Wallace's soul in the briefcase. And there are a couple of things to back that up. One of them just being that the code is like 666, that it's like guarding, it's like evil presence, things like that. Um, The other connection to that is the Band-Aid on the back of his head. And... Without going too far into it, there, there's I think it was Egyptian culture, something like that. There was some um, culture where there was a belief that the soul could be extracted through the top of the spine, base of the neck, basically. What? And so that that is what has happened, that he has lost his soul and he has hired Vincent Jules to retrieve it. Um, and so that's why like it's glowing, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that was a, a headcanon that was going around, um, for a while. It's interesting then to think that 
if he doesn't have a soul, does that mean Marcellus Wallace can't die? I mean, the guy gets hit by a car. He takes tons of punches. Like, he should have died, and yet he survives. So, um, could be. He didn't have a soul to lose. And this wasn't in the original headcanon, but I'd like to connect it to this story because I think it's such an interesting kind of concept that they're fighting for. But Tony Rocky Horror, the guy that they, the Samoan guy that got thrown out of the, the window, we never see it, but they talk about it at length that he gave Mia Wallace a foot massage and then that he got tossed out four stories and crashed through this like glass conservatory thing and got all cut up. Uh, Mia tells Vince, like, that's not true. That didn't happen. That seems like a huge overreaction for a foot massage. Still could have happened not for a foot massage, could have been that Tony Rocky Horror was somehow connected to the losing of uh, Marcellus Wallace's soul and that that is the event that connected it. I don't know how that would have happened, but that basically it was taken from him and then uh, this is about, really about Marcellus Wallace trying to get his soul back. Um, but it does seem like it's a fresh wound, hence the Band-Aid, um, and that this is all happening pretty quickly. Anyway, I, I, it's not my headcanon. I just think it's a, it's a really interesting headcanon and one worth, uh, worth noting. Um, to build onto your Tarantino universe that you were talking about, how it's a, a hyper-aggressive revisionist history, um, you do have three types of Quentin Tarantino movies. You have... Those that are revisionist history movies, uh, like Django, you have um, more of that, like, L.A. crime movies, uh, like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, and then you have movies that are said to exist within that universe as entertainment. Uh, And what I mean by that is movies like Kill Bill, where, again, not my theory, this is a, a separate theory, but that Kill Bill is the movie adaptation of the failed pilot of Fox Force 5. Yeah. Um, I mean, she describes the characters, very similar uh, types of stories, and and so that that would exist in this world that they've created. My additional headcanon to that, then, is that the sword that they find in the pawn shop at the end is... Uh, one of the original replicas from the, uh, like a prop, one of the original props from the Kill Bill movie in their universe. So when he takes the the giant samurai sword, he is is channeling the bride. Oh, nice. And then since I've used other people's headcanons for most (laughs) of this, um, I'm going to throw out two quick ones of my own. Uh, that Christopher Walken is the same character that he was in The Deer Hunter, um, just because he is a a troubled vet, and uh. <laughs> and that uh, Mia Wallace is actually the uh, grown up version of Ali Sheedy from The Breakfast Club. She's got black hair. She wears baggy clothes. She dodges the truth. Um, but mostly just her dancing style. It seemed like <laughs> similar dancing. Yep. Nope. That is canon as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, she's got white powder in front of her, like you know, 
certainly has a type. Oh, man. Okay, so you actually inspired some headcanon when you were talking about what is in Marcellus Wallace's uh, briefcase. Mm-hmm. So, um, when's the other time that you, we've seen something famously in cinema being opened up and glowing? Uh, Inception. Yes. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, the Tesseract. You know what? That was bad. Um, the guy loves briefcases. <laughs> I'm talking oh, specifically, yeah, yeah. Uh, specifically gold. Yeah, Raiders. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. My theory is that not that that this is, you know, the actual Ark of the Covenant, uh, mm-hmm. where if you open it up, your face melts off. But uh, the Ark of the Covenant is a gold-covered wooden chest with a lid described to contain the tombstone tablets of the Ten Commandments. I think that inside of the briefcase is a big chunk of the wooden chest itself mm. and it's and it's like it's more of a um you know like i don't know like how someone would get you know a piece of the ark of the covenant but like it's more of a um something that he carries with him and that he believes to be the reason why he is able to have all the power that he has kind of thing like added on protection and more of a thing of personal value that like other people would probably buy out of, but like for Marcellus Wallace, he's like, no, I need to own this. Yeah. So that's that mm. idea. I like that. If it was Marcellus Wallace's soul, maybe this was where the soul stone used to be. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that in Captain Marvel, we will find out how Pulp Fiction is part of the cinematic oh, universe. That's all I need. That's all it's going to be. And how Jules becomes, you know, Nick Fury. Yep. Last time I trusted someone, I lost <laughs> an eye. He's talking about Vince. He's talking about Vince. Oh, that's so good. Now we're going to go into the part of the show where we like to talk about recast and remakes. Recast, remake. They're never going to remake this, right? No, they can't. <laughs> There's there's certain movies. There's like this. Citizen Kane probably isn't going to get a reboot anytime soon. Oh, no. Soon. We need a Citizen Kane reboot <laughs> starring Greg Grunberg. Greg Grunberg. Oh, Vince D'Onofrio. Like, legitimately, Vince D'Onofrio would be an incredible Orson Welles. Oh, Vince D'Onofrio would be amazing. But I want Andy Serkis in a mocap suit to play the Citizen sled. Kane. Oh, yes. No, yeah, no, that also. Uh, but yeah, but if they were to remake this movie, let's just say in an alternate timeline, Pulp Fiction didn't exist, and they're making it today for the first time. Who would you cast, and what would the storyline be um, if you wanted to change it at all? Yeah. So my casting, uh, I, 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 in recent time, I think this might be the most proud I've been of casting. So if Pulp Fiction were to be made today, I would cast Dave Chappelle, and Steve Carell oh, as wow. um, Jules and Vincent, respectively. Or Eddie Murphy and James McAvoy. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, just because uh, I think that they, those two pairings would be great. And also, I just listening to Dave Chappelle, like, and any of his stand-up is just a joy. And it's, it just feels like it's just all storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that would be great. Uh, for Butch, a retired... Boxer, Toby Maguire. <laughs> I want to see it. 
it's my Spider-Man story. Uh, Spider-Man 4 story. He's retired. His abilities aren't as good. It's basically what is what I would love to see, a Spider-Man version of Logan. Yeah. Uh, Mia Wallace, Lindsay Lohan. She would be great. And then for Marcellus Wallace, um, I would actually love to see uh, Jordan Peele. Mm. I, I think Jordan Peele would be really great. Uh, he always plays uh, his straight characters in Key and Peele like very... Like real and like very believable, yeah. Um, and so I, I think that that would be great, especially today. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would love it if he directed. Uh, Tarantino's good. I would love to see. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's pretty good. Yeah, but... Tarantino's fine. Um, <laughs> but I honestly think that uh, Jordan Peele's uh, take on Pulp Fiction, if they were to do something like that, yeah. um, I would love it. Yeah. That's great. I really like that. My my recast, I'm I'm gonna pull a mapping recast for this, and I'm getting the exact cast of the Matrix, and I'm putting them in here. Vincent Jules, I mean it's Morpheus and Neo, yes. uh, Mia, Carrie Ann Moss, Trinity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess Hugo Weaving could be the wolf. He could probably even be Zed oh. if he wanted to, but I kind of like him as the wolf. Yeah. Uh, and then for Butch, uh, Joe Pantoliano. <laughs> they got yes. the same hairline. No, yeah. that's that's them. <laughs> but yeah, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. No, that's great. I love that. With Mouse as Brett. <laughs> oh. And Andy Circus as the, the briefcase. Oh, no. (laughs) All right. Now we're going to go into our final segment of the show where we give you our reasons to recommend. So, Grayson, why would you recommend Pulp Fiction? So I'd recommend Pulp Fiction because it is it truly is original for its time. And I think it's original today. Like you get a lot of films that try to recreate what Pulp Fiction did, but it is very well crafted. Each individual story is really strong interesting thematically connected they give you just enough connection to to feel like you're in the same world like mia wallace showing up in butcher's story and saying to vince hey i never thanked you for dinner that's all we need to make that connection it also just oozes cool it's such a, a great ensemble piece the performances are amazing but yeah there are little details that just make every watching of this even better and one thing that i'd like to make maybe a new tradition in the reasons to recommend is adding on a recommendation from us of if you liked this movie i recommend this and probably the natural progression for me is uh if you like pulp fiction i highly recommend watching jackie brown it's the ah. third in the L.A. crime Tarantino trilogy, going from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction to Jackie Brown. Uh, Jackie Brown is very much in that same style, but in my opinion, one of the more underrated and under-celebrated Tarantino films. So my recommendation is to check out Jackie Brown based on whether or not you like Pulp Fiction. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I I would recommend Pulp Fiction. If you live in a world where you haven't heard the F-bomb uh, 265 times, uh, exactly, Pulp Fiction, cure you right up. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, it, it's, it is one of those movies that 
takes a ton of risks. Like, it took a risk and it set a tone for a movie that really did become one of its own because what it did is it took the things that we tend to not do a lot, you know, like murder, uh, but by having that be something that doesn't matter um, as much to the people in the world, everything else gets more extreme. And so it really does... Uh, do what it was trying to do, which was to mimic the pulp magazines that were mm. bigger than life and larger than life and very exaggerated from our current world. Yeah. So it really is just like a genre study of like taking things that are already extreme to us in our world and making that not as important and then then raising the stakes from there because if um if shooting someone if accidentally killing someone is like inconvenient like oh man i shot marvin he's like oh there's blood everywhere and they're worried about the car and the blood more than we kill the guy like that that you get, a, you really do get a unique story from there. Um, and also, I mean, the movie uh, keeps you captivated the whole time. Like, I, I've seen this movie like quite a few times, and I'm still intrigued and interested because the pacing of it and the way that they edit the story is always uh, very interesting. Yeah, you, you really can just sit down in the world and allow yourself to be comfortably uncomfortable for two yes. and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And also, um, you know, if you're ever strapped for cash, this movie gives you a lot of great ideas about like robbing banks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not since raising Arizona have I been so inspired to want to rob a bank. Uh, that's This is going to be evidence, isn't it? I, I don't. Man, they I, got I, you now, man. I take it all back. They got you now. And ultimately, any movie that is worthy of being referenced in Space Jam specifically has my seal of approval. So watch it for that. I will say it's probably my favorite Steve Buscemi movie. (laughs) And my second favorite Julia Sweeney movie after (laughs) Clockstoppers. People really like that movie. People really like that movie. And that is our review of Pulp Fiction. Let us know what you remember about Pulp Fiction on Twitter. We are at Flashback Flicks. And it would mean a great deal to us if you could leave us a Royale with Cheese review on Apple Podcasts. Letting people know about this podcast and that it is worth listening to. Uh, maybe while you're, you know, having one of those comfortable silences you can be listening to us oh nice talking to you yeah look at that nice and if you're ever in france uh go to mcdonald's order the royale with cheese i have done this it tasted like a quarter pounder because it was one but i don't know uh what the french phrase for american nerd is but i'm pretty (laughs) sure i heard it Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Wonderful. And on a scale of one to five dollar milkshakes. Oh. Um, so, like, what, like a one dollar milkshake, hey, hey, that's understandable. It, it's it's uh, it's milk and ice cream, it, whatever. But five dollars, I mean, hey. Yeah. That's probably, it's probably a really good milkshake. That's, that's a good milkshake. <laughs> I got to know what a five star podcast sounds like. And we don't put bourbon in it or anything. No. <laughs> 
You can have it Amos and Andy or Ricky and Grayson. <laughs> Love it. Love it. And be sure to tune in next time right here on the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. Until then, remember to be kind and rewind.